0: Welcome again to the So House Therapy Podcast. This is a podcast that demystifies, debunks, and destigmatizes what happens in the therapy space. I'm your host, Karen Conlon. And today we are going to talk about a topic that is very widely known, but not widely understood. We are going to cover and demystify obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. So in terms of those lesser knowns, because now we're kind of going into these lesser known types of OCDs. Let's talk about some of those pure O OCD is related to intrusive thoughts and images, right? And if we think about the word intrusive, they're not welcome, right? I mean, it's not something that we really want in there. Can you tell us a little bit more about that type of OCD?
1: So pure O stands for purely obsessional, which is a subtype of OCD that's less known about yet very, very, very common. Somewhat of a misnomer because people do have compulsions, but the compulsions are not ones that we typically observe like the checking, the rearranging, the hand-washing, but are things that are more mental. So examples like ruminating, reassurance seeking, investigating, googling, answer seeking, anything that's in line with the pursuit of certainty in that way. And these are the types of examples that tend to kind of slip through the cracks often because people having this type of OCD might not even know that this is OCD. So I'll just go through some common examples themes related to sexuality, for example. So someone who is heterosexual might have an intrusive thought, but what if I'm actually gay? But what's interesting about that is it goes the other way as well. Someone who's in a homosexual relationship or identifies as such might have the thought of what if I'm actually straight? And then they go into this kind of rumination of trying to figure out, is it true, is it not true? But there is that person that I saw on the street or that character in TV. I was attracted to them, but what does I really do? Am I more attracted to them than my partner? What does this mean? What about this one thing that happened when I was 13? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Another example Is OCD often latches on to our relationships. So relationship OCD theme might lead someone to experience intrusive thoughts. Like what if I'm in the wrong relationship? What if I'm not as attracted to my partner as I quote unquote should be? What if I don't love them enough? What if I don't feel the same way about my partner as that post that I saw on Instagram yesterday or this character from the show? Uh, What if the fact that my partner has a bump on their nose means that I I'm really unattracted to them and I'm going to realize that one day and then have to break up with them and ruin our marriage, et cetera, et cetera. Another really common one is violent OCD. So people experiencing intrusive thoughts about either harming themselves or someone else. So what if I'm suicidal? What if I'm capable of hurting myself? What if, you know, when I had that chopping up my vegetables in the kitchen, and then I looked at the knife and saw my arm and thought I could split my wrist, what if that means I actually will do it? People having intrusive thoughts about hurting other loved ones. Another common one is pedophilia OCD, which as you can imagine, can be very distressing for people having intrusive thoughts about either being attracted to children or harming a child. So what if you know, I'm attracted to that child? What if I felt something in my groinal sensation when I was on the street, et cetera? So again, just a reminder that the content of these thoughts doesn't matter. And there's a reason why some of the examples I brought up tend to be about more either taboo
0: topics or topics that are very much in line with people's values. I mean, I have to say that hearing all of the different thoughts And the types of ruminations and worries, just ongoing worries, it really promotes so much empathy. As I think about the exhaustion, the mental, emotional, and even physical exhaustion that people who struggle with OCD go through on a daily basis, it's just really something that we all need to keep in mind the next time that we think of saying to someone or talking or just lightly saying about ourselves, oh, I'm OCD or they're OCD, struggling with thoughts that really are... Are so difficult because they do go against your value systems, right? I mean, the fact that you're worried about hurting someone so much is probably because it goes totally against your values, but that's how OCD works, right? It attacks. I want to just, I don't know if that's the right use of the word, but to me, it feels like an attack almost, right? And it's an attack of your values and inability to correct that and just say, no, 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 that's not how I am. And we're going to let go of that now.
1: Absolutely. And it's interesting that you use that word because most patients use that word as well, because it very much feels like an attack. But I think something people find helpful therapeutically is kind of reconceptualizing that idea. Because as we talked about before with the amygdala example, our brains aren't actually trying to attack us, they're really trying to protect us. And they just tend to maybe misattribute and have kind of a poor source of information for what actually is or isn't dangerous. So in fact, You know, I try to think about it and try to help patients think about it less as an attack, but more of like, if you think about a little kid kind of running up to a little your child, a niece, a nephew, a cousin being like, oh my gosh, there's a monster under the bed. Ah, 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 run, run, run. We normally wouldn't think about that as an attack. We would think maybe like that little kid is really scared or oh, he's really trying to protect us because he might think there is a monster under the bed. And I think often kind of bringing that kind of more compassion to our brains who might just be really scared and really thinking there's something dangerous and it's their mission to keep us safe can help us drop some of the kind of hostility in the battle that people with OCD engage in with their brains, which is part of what makes this so exhausting in that way. And even going as far as, I know this might sound like a stretch for someone with OCD, but going as far as even thanking their brain. Thank you, brain, for trying to protect me. I know you have the best intentions, but you know a what, right now, I'm not going to treat this as a relevant threat, but just one possibility out of many, many, many possibilities of things that may or may not be true
0: in life. Right. So rather than trying to change the thought or, you know, trying to find logic to it or trying to look at it in a different way, kind of leaning into it and saying, okay, you know what, I get that you're trying to protect me. And thank you for that. And this is my OCD and I get it. And it's this form of acceptance almost.
1: Exactly. That's a really, really big, big word. So I'm glad that you brought that up. That is a huge component of the therapy, learning to accept these thoughts as just what they are, intrusive, unwanted thoughts, but thoughts that we are not responsible for bringing up. And we're also not responsible for trying to control or push away or run away from, but just looking at these as thoughts that come up with an alarm signal sometimes. And unfortunately that alarm signal can't always be trusted.
0: Let me ask you, because now, Just thinking about these other forms, or as we call them cousins of OCD, is that alarm system always constantly going off? When you have OCD, or let's say on the spectrum, for those people who are struggling with other types of OCDs that they may not be aware of, like body dysmorphic disorder, for example, is the brain's alarm system always going off as well there? I was actually you know, shocked to learn that body dysmorphia falls in the spectrum of OCD. So can we talk about that? And also some, maybe a couple of other ones that are quite common out there, but we are not commonly known to fall into the spectrum of OCD.
1: Yeah, definitely. So in the diagnostic manual, the DSM-5 at the moment, There's something called obsessive-compulsive spectrum disorders. OCD is one of them. And then there's a few other types. I like to call them also like the cousins of OCD because they're related, a little bit different, but a lot of common denominators. So one big example of that is body dysmorphic disorder, sometimes called BDD for short, uh, which is very similar to OCD, but the people's obsessions tend to be focused on their appearance and their body image. And often they're focused on a perceived or actual physical imperfection, but oftentimes it's something that, again, the average person might not be able to see, or if they see, it might be something very slight. But to that person, they're experiencing BDD, their alarm signal goes off and they almost experience a distorted version of this physical appearance. Like they might think this like slight bump on their nose looks like, you know, a 90 degree angle and that that's the first thing that anybody sees when they're looking at them. Or if there's like slight asymmetry in their eyebrows, again, their brains might be putting the magnifying glass to it. Or if their hairline is like a centimeter direction more than they'd want to their brains might be telling them that this is the only thing people see when you walk into the room it looks hideous it defines who you are then their brains send us on another mission of a lot of compulsions like checking the mirror repeatedly or sometimes for some people avoiding the mirror completely or kind of using a lot of products seeking reassurance from loved ones like does this look okay does this look bad camouflaging, avoiding taking photos, avoiding maybe even going to certain social events because of their thoughts about their physical appearance, maybe using excessive products to try to change it. Some even go as far as having plastic surgery because of that, comparing their appearance with others, it kind of goes on and on.
0: I just had a thought about social media and influencers. And before social media, there was, you know, there were magazines, television shows, but now it's just out there. Everywhere you go, you know, you turn your phone on, you go to any social media app, and there's always some kind of focus on looks and presentation. Do you think just, you know, purely, you know, your opinion that social media can trigger or exacerbate some of these symptoms in people who are struggling with BDD?
1: Yeah, it often really does, right? It's just another, like you said, very easily accessible form for their brains to start kind of comparing and contrasting them and other people. I think even for their own social media, even posting a photo of themselves can be really, really anxiety provoking. They might avoid posting or they might use a lot of filters or they might kind of check something and look over it or ruminate about which photo or which angle to post for a very long time. And I think beyond just BDD, But just on a more kind of general spectrum of body image dissatisfaction, I think social media can be really triggering for that in terms of creating unrealistic expectations of what the norms are when the reality is a lot of social media is the best of the best of people's photos. There are images that are very controlled, filtered, angled, light uh, that people are comparing with their own kind of deepest, rawest versions of their physical appearance.
0: What other cousins of OCD or that fall within the OCD spectrum would you want to tell us about today? Sure. So just to mention briefly, you know, hoarding is also kind of a subtype where people experience a lot of
1: kind of obsessions related usually to accumulating things, sometimes pets, as well, And, you know, with hoarding, it's also not exactly just as simple as what we see on TV, but it's very complicated in terms of there's very different types of fears and thinking patterns that might motivate hoarding. For some people, they really have a hard time letting go of things or kind of over acquiring things because of the sentimental value that they place on it for some people. It comes from more of like a deprivation model. Like, well, what if I really need this later? What if I run out of these things? Or sometimes there's a big link between hoarding and perfectionism in that way. Like I need to keep all these articles and books because what if I need to get all this information? What if I miss something important?
0: I would never again have thought of that falling in the spectrum of OCD. One of the other things that has come up for some people that I've worked with in the past is the compulsion to pick. I remember actually when I was uh, in middle school, there was a boy that used to sit by me and the rest of his hair was completely straight. So I don't know how this happened, but there was this one curl that he had. And I mean, if he was sitting there for eight hours, he was for eight hours just curling. And I remember this, I mean, I'm talking, you know, a long time ago. I'm not gonna age myself here but this is a long time ago and I it's one of these things that I still remember because I was fascinated by the fact that this boy could sit there and just do that just continuously and you know I don't know that it's OCD or that it was OCD but you know I'm, I'm wondering are there also tendencies that we really we bring back to ourselves right that are not like about the hand washing necessarily but things like that like picking or yeah
1: so some other examples on the kind of obsessive compulsive spectrum category are people who engage in skin picking, which is called excoriation or hair pulling, which is called trichotillomania. And often people are engaged in also repetitive behaviors that might feel very compulsive, very much out of their control and are also like with wording motivated by different things, right? For some people, they might be trying to kind of fix any imperfections like, well, because this part of my hair is coarse or not straight or I have split ends, their brains tell them like you need to fix it or you need to get rid of that hair to not have that or you need to, there's a little imperfection on your face or a pimple, you need to like pick it until it's gone. Uh, and for other people, you know, becomes more like a self soothing behavior or a distraction behavior when they're maybe experiencing anxiety or stress or just excess energy that their bodies send us. This might be a way that that is released by that just kind of very kind of automatic repetitive behavior which often they're not even aware that they're doing in the moment. What about boredom? Yeah, that's a big trigger for people as well.
0: We have talked about all these different types and and subtypes of OCD. We touched a little bit on treatment in terms of leaning in into the thought. Let's talk a little bit about how it's treated. I know that providing education about what OCD is, is really important because it's important that people understand what it is. And what it's not, and also set expectations around what they can and really cannot do with it. But can you tell me a little bit more about what that psychoeducation would involve? Like, if you're starting to work with someone new, what kind of things would you tell them about OCD to get them on the right track?
1: Some of that would be just really helping them understand how it works from the amygdala example, helping them understand that these thoughts are not in their control in that way and practicing learning how to accept them as the independent system that they are. A lot of learning about how doubt and uncertainty is the common denominator between all OCD symptoms. So whether it's traditional OCD like counting and checking rituals or more pure O rumination reassurance seeking behaviors, whatever the theme is. Usually it's motivated by their brain telling them uncertainty and doubt is unacceptable. So the antidote to OCD is really learning how to welcome more doubt and uncertainty in our lives, how to make more room for it. And that's where the true freedom from OCD comes. And in terms of the therapy, there's a lot of research to support that the gold standard of treatment for OCD is exposure and response prevention therapy, otherwise known as ERP. And then also techniques from ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy have been found to be very helpful as well. And, you know, a lot of other things in the mental health field are kind of to be debated in terms of pros and cons of one therapy versus another. But when it comes to OCD, at least right now, the literature is very clear. And one of the reasons I chose to specialize in this is because it's really exciting to work in a field where we really have a much better understanding of OCD than we ever have. And that we have therapy that, you know, by no means is easy, but it's very effective for the people who are willing to engage it. And, you know, the way that I talk about ERP is kind of the therapy is twofold reactive and proactive. And the reactive part is really helping people get equipped with different tools and strategies for how to deal with the OCD episode when it comes up. And all of those tools are kind of in the spectrum of learning to treat those thoughts, images, urges as irrelevant, even though they feel very dangerous still and sort of retraining the brain.
0: So glad that you're tuning in. This is just a quick reminder that this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not replace treatment by a licensed professional. Ready to hear more? Here you go. You mentioned exposure response prevention and ACT as being two of the what we call gold standards in treating OCD. Can you give us just a very simple example of what exposure response prevention looks like erp and also what act what does that stand for and what's an example of that what might that look like
1: so with erp essentially what we're doing is we're retraining the brain so we talked a lot in our talk today about what doesn't work for ocd logic reason that approach so we want to find kind of a backdoor way to respond to the ocd episodes by using different strategies to learn how to treat them as irrelevant. That's sort of the keyword that we want to go to. And with ERP, the response prevention part is really about learning how to not engage in the rituals that feed the OCD, how to stop counting, the checking, the reassurance, seeking, the ruminating. And then the exposure part is really learning how to lean in and go towards some of the things that feel most triggering or distressing that our brains are telling us as dangerous for the purpose of practicing treating them as if they're not dangerous, even though they still feel that way. So for example, someone with harm OCD who might have thoughts about, well, what if I stab my son with this knife and their rituals are throwing all the knives away or making sure not to be in the same room as their son when they're cooking dinner. The exposure for them might be to practice chopping up some vegetables when the son is nearby in that way and letting their brains kind of go wild and bring up all types of intrusive thoughts. But what if you get angry at him? What if he does something to kind of you know, trigger you and then you get really angry and you lose control and stab him? with this knife and their job during the exposure is to practicing, okay, brain, I hear you. Thanks for the warning. I'm going to let this thought be just a thought, or I'm going to let this be just one possibility of something that might happen, or in maybe later parts of the treatment that might be a little bit more aggressive, we might go towards the thought of being like, yep, right you know what? Maybe I'm chopping up this carrot right now, but at any moment, I might stick this knife in my child's heart, chop him up in little pieces, and then saute him and make kibachi for dinner. Wow. <laughs> so yes. Wow.
0: <laughs> This is why we gave the trigger alert.
1: So like I mentioned, that's a much more aggressive form of therapy. That's usually in the more advanced stages, but what perfect way to treat something as irrelevant by being, making fun of it. And by taking it to like an extreme animated kind of adventure being like, Hey brain, you're creative with this possibility, let me show you how creative I am. And I'm able to take it down a notch, the most kind of animated, detailed example possible.
0: So this is great to know, because I think people oftentimes will make assumptions, right about Oh, what does this look like? What is this supposed to look like? So if possible, whenever possible, if you, you know, have identified that you might be dealing with some type or subtype of OCD, if it is possible to get treatment and professional help, you're much better off than trying to figure it out yourself, because without knowing it, you might actually be enabling and reinforcing certain behaviors. If you have interpreted what you think treatment is because you've done all this research and like, oh, this is what ERP is supposed to be. And then without knowing it, you might be actually really reinforcing these behaviors that are actually the ones that you want to get away from or lean into and say, okay, you know, this is what it is, but then treat it in a certain way.
1: Exactly. Um, with a lot of therapy, but particularly with this type, it's very, very important and really helpful to at least initially work with a qualified mental health professional who help you both diagnose it correctly, provide you the education, and then guide you at least at the beginning to how to practice the spirit of the therapy. Because a lot of it isn't about what you're doing, but about the mentality that you're doing it. Because there's such a fine line between an exposure and a compulsion. And the difference is, again, the spirit in which you're Doing it, because that same example that I brought up with the cutting, using a knife around the sun, it could be an exposure. If you're saying, "Hey brain, look at me, living life on the wild side. I'm tolerating this uncertainty. I'm letting this mystery be a mystery, and I'm going to make a choice in line with my value of spending quality time with my son or having healthy home-cooked dinners for us, etc." Versus it becoming a ritual if you're holding that knife and being like, "Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, don't move it more than an inch, because what if you lose control?" Or, "Okay, move the cutting board and the knife a few inches away from your On, or only do it when you're in a good mood and everything's great between you, or consistently ruminating about, like, do I, would I do this? Would I not? What about that serial killer I read about last week? Am I like him? We both have brown hair. What does that mean?
0: And that brings me to the other gold standard that you mentioned, ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. We talked earlier about the fact that OCD really latches on to your values. Can you tell us a little bit about ACT and how that? That works with that values piece? So
1: ACT and ERP are both types of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And I find that ACT really supplements the ERP work very nicely. And one of the biggest components, like you said, Karen, is the values. So big part of ACT treatment is helping people identify what are their values, what are the things that are most important to them in their life that they want to stand for, that they want to guide their choices, and getting clarity on that, and then using those as sort of the map for how they want to live their life. So it could be like family, it could be health, it could be really anything that's really kind of important that they want to lay out as the compass of their life. And then it's about helping them identify what are the barriers to making more choices in line with those values. And often for many people, but especially with OCD, it's the unwanted thoughts and feelings that might lead them to try to escape or avoid them. And then it's about learning different techniques that are part of ACT that supplement the ERP work, such as which we touched upon the acceptance work, how to accept the things that are not in our control with OCD. We can't, we don't sign up for these thoughts and feelings, right? You don't wake up in the morning with a menu of which thoughts and feelings you want to have for the day and you check the, I want to have thoughts about stabbing my son today box in that way and practicing treating them as an independent system that we don't have control over. A big technique and act is called cognitive diffusion which just simply means learning how to identify and create separation from those thoughts, treating thoughts as just thoughts. Another huge component of that that's really helpful are mindfulness techniques. A lot of times with OCD, especially, but in life in generally, we get caught up with the past or the what ifs of the future. So a lot of mindfulness is learning how to be more in control of our attention to bring it back to the present moment. And also building a higher kind of willingness to experience some discomfort in our lives if that's in the service of our values and brings us closer to it. I often like to use ACT as sort of a way to help people focus on the bigger picture as you guys have kind of gotten the little hints that ERP is not always fun or easy. It's very difficult work but it could be very meaningful and can be very freeing. And one of the ways that people are willing to do the hard work is if it brings them closer to their values. If I'm doing this really hard practice, but that means I can spend more time with my son, spend more time with my child, to go to work on time and consistently, to see my friends when I want to see them, to be able to go to practice my religion the way that I want to, not kind of avoiding my religious practice because it's filled with so many rituals, how to be able to drive my car to the places I want to go to take the train and all of the other things that OCD part of the brain might say are bad, dangerous.
0: So that makes so much sense, right? You want to bring it back to your values so that they understand that those thoughts are just thoughts and that they really are not in line with their values. So that's a big part of making that connection with those thoughts and diffusing those thoughts. A lot of people seek out therapy to help with their OCD, but they might be doing different types of therapies, not necessarily these. Can other therapies also be helpful? Can some be harmful? Yes. So that is a good question. And I think
1: the reality is unfortunate with OCD, aside from these ERP and act them, other types of therapies can actually be harmful if they involve kind of giving content to the intrusive thoughts. So a lot more kind of psychodynamic therapies might focus more on trying to get uncover the origin of these thoughts and covering sort of why these thoughts are what they are, which can actually do the opposite of what we want and put the spotlight on them and treat them as important, significant themes. And while it is true that sometimes OCD latches on to thoughts that are related to our values. It really is fair game and it could be about anything and everything. And the content doesn't matter, which is a huge part of ERP work as well. So going kind of into the past and giving, trying to make sense of these thoughts and give them meaning is actually very counterproductive at times. And even also with more traditional cognitive behavioral therapy, like doing cognitive restructuring, which we spoke about earlier, can also do some harm by feeding into the thoughts and continuing to use logic and reason to work through them. And that one could be tricky because it could feel like it's working in the moment because that person can find short-term relief. Someone with, let's say, pedophile theme. Their therapist saying, you know what, I really have not concerned that you'd harm a child at all. You are the kindest person I know. You know what, I would even leave my baby with you because I think you're so, so unlikely that that's never going to happen. Well, again, that could feel very nice for the person experiencing OCD, but then their mind can show up a few minutes later and be like, but do they really know me? Or what about this one thought that I didn't share with them exactly in the way that I had it? What if that would make them change their mind or You know, that one time where I pushed someone on the swings when I was seven, maybe that means I am capable of violence in that way. So those are just some examples of the types of therapies that can feed into it rather than help.
0: And by the way, if a therapist says to you, you're one of the kindest people that I know I would leave my baby with you, that's a problem with boundaries. And I talk a little bit about that in one of my other episodes, can therapy make yours? So just a little note on that. <laughs> okay, so a couple of last things here. Medication, is it always necessary? Yes or no? It's not always necessary. Sometimes it can be
1: helpful for some people. And what I usually recommend is, you know, if someone is coming in uh, and their OCD is really severe in the way that it's really affecting their ability to kind of live their life and function if they're avoiding and not able to get to work or to school or are losing relationships because of it, then often starting medication and ERP at the same time would be the recommended approach. But for other people who are coming in and they're obviously experiencing pain or suffering, that's why they're here, but they're still kind of generally functioning. uh, While medication is an option, we sometimes recommend, let's start with ERP. Let's give it a go for a few months and kind of see how it goes. Because if we start both at the same time and then the person feels better and is living better and three months, it's then hard to isolate. Well, is it the medication or is it the therapy? And you know, also medication comes with risks of it not working or coming with side effects as well. So I'll usually say, let's see how we do for a few months and then reevaluate if we're still making consistent improvement and moving forward. Let's see how we deal with that. Or if we are getting stuck somewhere or have made some progress, but then hit a plateau then let's bring a psychiatrist on board to see if adding medication can help them kind of get over the hump and do the therapy more effectively.
0: Well, what you said also just has me thinking about the different areas of care that a person, one person can receive a medication or no medication. Some people might be seeing a psychiatrist, some people might be seeing, you know, working on their nutrition also. So it brings me to, to the thought of, does it make sense for people with OCD to see two therapists at once? The reason I bring this up is because in our practice at Cohesive Therapy NYC, generally speaking, the policy that we have is if you're going to work with us, work with us, give yourself the opportunity to really focus on things. Sometimes people come and they have other therapists another therapist therapists that they've been seeing for a few years and they're thinking, well, I talked to that therapist about this and I'm going to talk to you guys about this. Not really understanding that what they're doing is not really allowing anybody to get the full picture. And maybe what they might be struggling with is that that therapy relationship might need to be coming to a pause, but not wanting to let go, it might be a lot more work for you. Actually, you might be dealing with two therapists that are really great, but they have very different philosophies, very different orientations that actually might be conflicting. In our practice, our policy is work with one therapist, whether it's us or whoever, but you know, give yourself the opportunity to really focus. Is that the case for OCD? Is it recommended? Is it okay? Because you know, maybe they're seeing a therapist that doesn't specialize in OCD. What are your your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you did a really excellent job summarizing exactly our treatment and my treatment philosophy as well. And our practice CBT for better living, we pretty much say word for word, what you've said. Can't agree more. And, you know, again, we don't want to diminish the value of people working with different people with different perspectives. And a lot of patients come in and said, like, I love my therapist. We've done really great work together. Here are ways I've made improvement, but here's this one area where this might not be their area of expertise. And often we recommend the same thing. Just let's take a pause. If you want to try this, let's go all in, try this for a few months and then reevaluate in that way, because it can be very, you know, it can be therapy overload and it could be very confusing if there's anything that's contradicting, or not perfectly aligned as always, but especially with OCD, because the therapy, as you guys have heard, is so specific and sometimes involves doing things that seem counterintuitive in the short term in that way. And then the other thought is that OCD doesn't come in a vacuum. It'll be really nice if we can sort of pause and put OCD in a bubble and just treat that in itself. But often OCD is really related to all other areas of people's lives as well. Um, and also, you know, as you mentioned, this doesn't have to be a long-term thing. We can always, once you kind of get a better sense and make some headway in this therapy, you can always reassess and then resume work with your previous therapist afterwards.
0: Thinking about what you mentioned a couple of minutes ago about some therapies that actually can be harmful, if they're seeing, let's say a therapist who is psychodynamically oriented or psychoanalytically oriented, and then they come see you at the same time, the work is going to be completely contradictory. What they're doing with you is going to potentially be undone with their other therapist. Exactly. So we recommend Pick a direction,
1: stick with it. And then you can always reassess. It's not a commitment. You're not signing a contract to work for X amount of months. you are just trying a different perspective. And it's important to be really present and immersed into it. And then of course, making a decision in the future. And also one of the fun things that I really like is sometimes after we make headway with the OCD stuff, and that takes up less time and energy in people's lives. Then we can work on some more kind of actual things that are really important and valuable to them that OCD might've been clouding their ability to really kind of understand or tackle. And then another fun thing is that some of the strategies that we use for OCD are very applicable to other aspects of life, right? Who doesn't have unwanted thoughts and feelings, OCD or not, and learning to make room for them to accept them, to have a better relationship with our brains, to give them less power, to not let anxiety and fear kind of run the show in our decision making process are all different things that are very applicable outside of OCD as well. This is
0: so helpful. I have personally learned so much. And I'm sure that people listening out there are really going to have a much more rich and different perspective on OCD. You know, because this podcast is about demystifying, debunking and destigmatizing what goes on in the therapy space. Can you tell me if you wanted to to leave people with one aspect of OCD therapy that you want to demystify and you want people to walk away with that message, what would that be?
1: So, one hopeful takeaway from today's episode and our discussion is for people to understand that OCD is not an adjective and it's often misused in media or even by just lay people to describe people who are you know, like things organized a certain way or like things clean a certain way. And that really doesn't encompass what OCD actually is and how complex it can be and all the different ways it can manifest and also the incredible amount of pain that it might cause people. And that using it as an adjective to describe some perfectionistic tendency or preferences can be really, really invalidating for people who are experiencing it and can also perpetuate misinformation and might make it less likely that people who actually are experiencing it to be able to identify it as such. And as we talked about, just having the name and label for it can be such an important first step towards the journey of learning how to then get freedom from it and not let it take away people from living the kind of lives that they want.
0: So OCD is not an adjective. And so the next time that you experience even yourself or someone else engaging in a behavior where it feels to you like, oh... Look at that, they're really being OCD. Just kind of maybe think back at what we talked about today and perhaps think about what else might be going on. Is there an alternative way of thinking about it? Or is this something that maybe you want to look into if it's a loved one where you feel might be important to address it with? But let's try to make sure that we're using OCD in the appropriate ways and not minimizing it and people's experience. That's Tiana, where can people find you? Please tell us, because I know that this is something that people are going to need to know more about. They're going to want to know more about and any resources that you'd like to pass along. So uh, we have a practice. We're located in New York City, but currently seeing people in New
1: York, New Jersey, and Florida. It's called CBT for Better Living, which stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Better Living. And our website is cbtforbetterliving.com. Our email address is cbtforbetterliving at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram at OCDAnxietyExpert. So on my website, CBT for Better Living, there's a link to some resources that could be helpful. And some main ones are IOCDF, which is the International OCD Foundation. And Made of Millions could also be kind of a great way to start kind of diving into all the knowledge that's out there about OCD.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. I am so happy that we were able to have you on today, Dr. Tatiana Mesachkina, expert specializing in OCD. And if you'd like to know more, please visit her group's website, CBTforBetterLiving.com. And as always, if you want to know more about our practice or this podcast, please be sure to head over to cohesivetherapynyc.com forward slash podcast. You can get all the show notes here from this episode and from other episodes, resources and how to get in touch. Thank you for being here today and see you next time when I once again ask, so how's therapy?